0: Hello and a warm welcome as you join us on Search for Truth, your Bible study program with teacher Brian Johnston. Thanks for joining us. Brian takes a further look into the Gospel of Mark today in chapters 11 and 12 in particular. These chapters record various conflicts in the temple courts uh, which Jesus had with the uh, religious leaders at the time and uh, the title of today's study is Various Conflicts in the Temple Courts. It's interesting how Jesus avoids direct emotional confrontation in contrast to how we might argue with someone who criticises or wants to pick a fight. Jesus had a distinct advantage, though. He knew their thoughts even before they said anything. But let's go to Brian now for more teaching from the Scriptures.
1: Thanks, John. I think it's worth reminding ourselves that Mark began his Gospel by announcing Jesus as God's Son, the long-awaited King. He then went on to give different examples of the kind of authority we might expect a divine king to have. Increasingly, at the end of Jesus' earthly life, this authority was being openly and repeatedly questioned by one group after another who were all hostile to Jesus. Although Mark had opened his story by plainly affirming Jesus is the Son of God, we've seen how some later said Jesus was mad or beside himself. Many today would happily concede Jesus was a good man, but that's not an option, for as Jesus said to the rich ruler, if he's good, then he's God, if he's not good, then he's bad. The options then are mad, bad, or God. As we explore together the endings of chapters 11 and 12, surely we cannot fail to see that they confound the idea that Jesus was any kind of deranged con-man. He is instead what Mark said in opening, the Son of God. One final point to rehearse as we begin to unpack the various conflicts that erupted in the temple courts. Let's not lose sight of the incident where Jesus cursed a fig tree. We need to remember that an equally fruitless temple is under a curse. This temple is the scene for a series of challenges to Jesus' authority. First up is the conflict with temple authorities About authority. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Jesus and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the first round of the contest. After the upsetting of the money-changing tables by Jesus, it seems some people had got more than a little upset themselves. They decided to set a trap for Jesus with a test question about the source of his authority. If Jesus answered that he was acting on personal, heavenly authority, they would likely try to press blasphemy charges. If, on the other hand, he said his was a mere earthly authority, they'd probably have pressed for criminal damages. But Jesus skillfully overturned the trap, just as he had done with the tables. It makes me think of a game of chess, where if you threaten my king, the best defence is to threaten yours. The masterful wisdom Jesus displayed in his answer is quite inconsistent with any allegation of madness. John the Baptist, whom the Lord cited in his answer, is someone who features in the parable Jesus went on to speak to his opponents at the start of Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another slave, And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours.' They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvellous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. The picture or analogy of comparing God's people Israel to a vineyard wasn't new. The prophet Isaiah had previously done the same in his Old Testament book, but it's now even worse than Isaiah had painted in chapter 5 of his writings. In Isaiah's telling, the fruit produced was disappointingly low-grade, but in Jesus' updated version, the fruit is being willfully withheld. There's an additional emotional build-up too in Jesus' storytelling when we're told the owner decides to send not only his son, but his beloved son, and emphasises that surely they will respect him. It's all set up for the monstrous crime of the tenant farmers killing the son when he arrives to collect the proceeds. In his Gospel, Matthew tells us that the tenant's crime, as depicted, so outrages the listeners that they bring in the verdict against them. This is just before the realisation dawns on them that they've just condemned themselves out of their own mouths because Jesus has told the parable against them. What Jesus has done here is to explain his own death in terms of the nation's rebellion against God. In the curious ending about a once-rejected stone becoming the most important stone in the entire building, which seems to be about some kind of dramatic reversal of judgment, we sense that Jesus is talking about himself. They, the religious leaders, the nation-builders, were rejecting him and about to put him to death. But afterwards, God would raise him up to the highest place. And that highest place would be in a replacement spiritual temple that was designed to replace their now accursed temple. But a rejected stone can never become the most important stone if that rejection involves death. Not unless resurrection is involved. And that connects with a following topic. Jesus' conflict with the religious sect of the Sadducees about the fact that death does not end all. The conflicts seem to be coming in waves. Pharisees and Herodians, Sadducees and scribes. Then after the Herodians quiz Jesus about taxes, and he's famously answered, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, there comes a different sort of question from a scribe acting on his own, and speaking much more sincerely and reasonably for himself, he asked Jesus which was the greatest commandment in God's law. The Lord's reply was once again memorable, as he summarised the whole law in terms of loving the Lord our God, and in the second place, loving our neighbour. If this was a boxing contest, Jesus has just won the first four rounds, and he now scores a knockout punch. I say that because he totally confounds his critics. When he began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. This revealed that the scribes' view of the son of David was narrower than the one that the blind beggar Bartimaeus had. Jesus shows here that the Messiah was not only David's son, but David's divine Lord, and David himself had recognised that. What an irony, though, that the scribes had a lower view of the son of David than the blind beggar. Jesus ends with a damning critique of the religion of the scribes, which was all about externals, how to look good in the eyes of others without dealing with inner corruption, such as seizing widows' houses. Unsurprisingly, Mark then spotlights a poor widow woman whom Jesus observed coming to the temple at that moment to give her contribution, which was a mere cent. It was a negligible gift in the eyes of most, if not all present, had they at least known about it, but in the eyes of the only one who mattered it was truly appreciated. This was a case of little being more than much, for as Jesus said, she put in the offering box all that she had to live on, while the other rich donors had tossed in out of their surplus. Jesus noticed what this widow gave, but they hardly noticed the loss of what they themselves had given. These answers Jesus gave at this time were interspersed with warnings of future judgment, running through them like a thread. This, as we'll see, is a prelude to the next chapter, chapter 13.
0: There's a book which contains all the transcripts of the talks in this series and it's available on request if you'd like a copy just write in by post or email to obtain it simply ask for the title take your marks gospel and you can do this by using email or post and here's our postal address first search for truth hayes press the barn flaxlands royal Wootton bassett Swindon SN four eight DY UK. Our email address is SFT at churchesofgod.info. Now we've almost reached the end of today's programme, and I hope you, like me, profited from the study. So please join me again next week if you can. I'd love to see you for further teaching in the Gospel of Mark. But until then it's Cheerio and very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian our producer David, our singers, and me, John. So goodbye, and may God richly bless you. Oh, the
1: joy of